This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, fighting for financial security for our seniors. Find out more at carp.ca. And welcome to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Libby Snymer. How and where did the COVID-19 pandemic start? I talked to investigative journalist Elaine Dewar about the troubling questions and new leads in her latest book. And why CARP called an emergency on this year's National Seniors Day. But first, here are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. There is growing awareness of Canada's mistreatment of Indigenous people, and an increasing number of Canadians blame our governments. This according to the final report of a survey by the Environics Institute, which also found fewer Canadians now believe Indigenous people themselves are impeding that progress. When participants were asked to list the first thing that comes to mind when they think of Indigenous people in Canada— 28% cited mistreatment or abuse. The first National Day for Truth and Reconciliation was marked last Thursday. Nova Scotia Health is placing a 30-day hold on referrals for medical assistance in dying, because increased demand has created a significant backlog. According to Nova Scotia Health, the program has already exceeded the total number of referrals received in 2020. Officials say they will now focus on those who are already waiting. Statistics Canada says 2020 saw the lowest number of annual births since 2006, with 13,000 fewer births than in 2019. Births have already been decreasing nationally every year since 2016, but this year was the greatest single decline from a previous year. In 2019, around 372,000 babies were born. With the government shutdown looming south of the border, American lawmakers have agreed to fund operations until the beginning of December. This after Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen warned that nearly 50 million American senior citizens could face delays in their Social Security payments or stop getting them altogether. In addition, U.S. troops would not know when they would get their next paycheck, and 30 million families who rely on monthly child tax credits would not receive that relief. Congress still needs to find a longer-term solution to suspend or raise the debt ceiling. Hey there, I'm running for re-election. It's the right thing to do for Iowa. At 88, Chuck Grassley is seeking his eighth term in the U.S. Senate. He is the Senate's oldest GOP lawmaker. His decision will no doubt be a sigh of relief for Republicans who are trying to win back control of the chamber as several Republican senators announced their retirement this year. Grassley regularly wins re-election by double digits, and polls show him with a big lead on his Democratic challenger. 
But he's not the oldest senator. Democratic Senator Dianne Feinstein of California has him beat by three months. I'm Libby Zneimer, and those are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. It's one of the biggest unanswered questions about the pandemic. How and where did it start? Last year, the most commonly accepted explanation was that it originated in the wet market in Wuhan. The thinking on that is changing, and the so-called lab leak theory is getting a second look. But it all bothered Toronto investigative journalist Elaine Dewar from the start. I talked with her about her new book, on the origin of the deadliest pandemic in a hundred years, an investigation. Really in January of 2020, as the stories started to unroll in the newspapers and on television, I mean, the numbers of the, of the sick kept jumping around. There was a sense uh, from the official statements in China that there was no human-to-human transmission. At the same time, they were getting set to build these enormous uh, hospitals in Wuhan because they were clearly expecting a huge onrush of patients, which of course they got. So by January of 2020, when Xi Jinping, the president of China, finally admitted that there was human-to-human transmission, you know, my radar was already up and buzzing. What about the authorities here and elsewhere were very adamant that none of this posed a threat to us. I know. And that is just absolutely extraordinary. In in the book, I'm quoting uh, the Globe and Mail, quoting the Ottawa citizen who had the heads up to call and speak to the Public Health Agency of Canada and ask, you know, what about the risk to us? And they actually were told that there was very low risk to Canadians because we had no direct flights to Wuhan, which is absolute errant nonsense. I mean, it makes no sense. But they continued with this low risk long after the first cases showed up in Vancouver and in Toronto, uh, long after it was clear to epidemiologists. I mean, from January 31, 2020, it was clear that there was a pandemic. The WHO called it a public health emergency of concern, but it was clear it was a pandemic, and they continued in Canada with that nonsense until the pandemic was actually declared in March. It didn't take very long after the pandemic was declared, and we thought that we had the answer to how it started, and that was that it jumped from animals to humans in this wet market in Wuhan. Except that the earliest papers that were published in peer-reviewed journals, and I'm talking here The Lancet and Nature, make it quite, on the New England Journal of Medicine, make it quite clear that the first epidemiological paper looking at who the first infected persons were clearly showed that 44% of the first group of infected persons had no relationship whatsoever to that market. So while it was pushed by people who had an interest in pushing the spillover theory, that it must have, you know, unleashed itself in the wet market. The facts were otherwise, right from the beginning. So how come nobody, certainly in the West, cottoned on to that? Oh, I think lots of people in the West cottoned on to that. You know, the, the argument about lab leak versus natural spillover really began also at the end of January of 2020. 
uh, Science, which is a leading journal like Nature, published an article about how this time China was cooperating as opposed to the original SARS when it didn't. And in that article, uh, they quoted a guy named Richard Ebright, who's a leading scholar um, in the United States, who said, you know, maybe it's a spillover, but it's just as likely it's a lab leak. From that point forward, uh, those who had been working with the Wuhan Institute of Virology and with its neighbor, the Wuhan CDC, who had been studying coronaviruses from bats in China since the first SARS epidemic, immediately leaped into print uh, to say those who uh, consider this to be a possibility, a lab leak a possibility, um, are basically conspiracy theorists and they should, you know, be quiet. How did the lab leak theory get back on the table? Because there were people who just didn't buy it. Getting to the bottom line, your theory is a version of the lab leak theory. It is. People sort of on the margin of of science have been getting very upset about the way China was controlling the narrative of origin, the WHO was in effect going along with it, and leading persons in the United States who were working in concert with Chinese colleagues were in effect helping shape that narrative. And they began to dig up documents and articles and papers, uh, which really presented another story, which described the illnesses of six miners who were working in Yunnan uh, in a mine loaded up with bats and bat feces, uh, who became so ill that three of the six actually died. And it turned out that the doctors who were treating them you know, tested for everything. They were thinking maybe it's a bacteria, no, fungi, no. Tested for coronavirus, and they didn't get a a complete response, but it looked to them like it was a SARS-like something. So they sent samples, again, to the Batwoman, Shi Zhang Li, at the Wuhan Institute of Virology, Virology, 13 samples in all, taken over the course of four years. A group in uh, the U.S. called... um, Bioscience Resource Org, which is run by two people, Jonathan Latham and his partner, Allison Wilson, had a look at this material and developed a very interesting thesis in which their argument is that whatever infected those miners was definitely SARS-like, and whatever it was had the time to fully adapt itself to human beings while in those miners' lungs, because those miners were sick for four or five months, and there would have been a very high rate of replication of the virus, and it would have adapted itself over time uh, to human beings. It's their belief that those samples, which went to the Wuhan Institute of Virology, were either then studied and somehow accidentally released, or finally uh, led to the generation of a new kind of virus that had simply not been published before. Now, I think that thesis is a really good one. Elaine Dewar, fascinating. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That was Elaine Dewar, author of On the Origins of the Deadliest Pandemic in a Hundred Years, an Investigation. I'm Libby Zneimer, and this is the Zoomer Week in Review. Coming up, National Seniors Day in the wake of the federal election. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP. 
where you can meet like-minded people fighting for a new vision of aging. Find out more at carp.ca. I will call this meeting to order and welcome everyone to National Seniors Day and CARP's very first virtual emergency meeting of members. That's how CARP convened a huge virtual meeting to mark National Seniors Day on October 1st. It was billed an emergency meeting because of their take on the approach, or lack thereof, to older Canadians by all parties in the recent election. I chatted with David Kravitz, CARP's chief membership officer. How did you mark this pandemic National Seniors Day? This year, we said, wait a minute, it's not business as usual. We can't really celebrate. We can celebrate the role and importance of seniors as such. But what's there to celebrate? All the major parties turn their backs on seniors. And why should we let them just send in some, you know, video greetings with the usual boilerplate about how much they care about seniors when none of them really addressed it during the election? And we don't think we're going to get what we want without getting Uh, very angry and vocal uh, going forward. So what did you do? We declared a national emergency meeting of CARP, and we turned it into a very large uh, Zoom coast-to-coast meeting where we could basically let the folks um, express in their own words. We, We gave a little intro to the management of CARP, but basically it was their meeting, and express how they felt about Uh, what the issues are going forward, what their reaction was to the fact that our issues were really nowhere in sight during the election campaign and what they're going to be looking for uh, in the future. And uh, we want, we have recorded that, uh, that meeting and we're going to be sending that video to all the major parties, their leaders and their uh, political organizers. And what's the upshot? What do people want? Are they angry? There's a lot of anger. Uh, there's a lot of frustration. Um, and I think there's two things that are converging here, uh, especially as we head toward the, the end of the uh, pandemic, hopefully. <clears throat> One is that there really are some deep-seated issues that aren't being properly talked about. It's being kissed off. Health care being one of them, the future of long-term care being one of them, financial security being one of them. And there was a feeling that none of the major parties really got honest about this. It was just another box for them to check. There was no sense whatsoever that, you know, we're on the clock here, especially seniors. And these uh, problems, there are some very deep systemic problems that need very urgent action. And there's a complete lack of commitment to do anything more than pay lip service to it. What about the impact of the pandemic. Do you think that it has hurt seniors more than in a physical way in terms of the way they're viewed and also finances? Well, I think it has. I think it's hurt seniors more than uh, than other groups physically. Obviously, the death rate, the mortality rate, um, the exposure of really deep problems in long-term care and indeed in the entire healthcare system, the hospital system, um, that just aren't being addressed. And um, even the promises were very glib, you know, Trudeau. And I think, I think all three parties, let me say probably 
have their heart in the wrong pl- in the right place. I'm, I'm not accusing anybody of malice here, but the, the words just come out so quickly. I'm going to hire fifty thousand more nurses. Well, isn't it great? You know, you aren't. The provinces have to. How long is it going to take? Where's the money? Who's going to do the heavy lifting? Who's going to do the hard work? And do you think we have a great system right now, Mr. Prime Minister? Because I don't, and our members don't. Will we spend near the top of the OECD on health care and get near the bottom in results? And we keep hearing the same platitudes, election after election after election. And I think uh, CARP, uh, if I may say, is I think learning a bit from the the campaign we did to fire uh, Minister Fullerton, the Minister of Long-Term Care, during the this pandemic, uh, circling back to the pandemic, uh, which you asked me about. Um, and that, Doug Ford responded to that when he did his cabinet shuffle. Not only was she gone, but her deputy minister was gone. And we had drawn attention in our campaign to the high salary the deputy minister was earning, not that he was earning more than other deputies do, but, you know, big dollars. And where are the results? Where's the accountability? Where's the sense of responsibility? So I think our, our magic word going forward is accountability. And I can tell you, we are right now, we've started looking at all the salaries of all the civil servants in all the provinces who are engaged in health and long-term care, and we're going to be exposing this in the year ahead. Have you heard anything, any engagement from the new Ontario minister, Rod Phillips? He received our uh, booklet. We prepared a book uh, summarizing the results of our the poll, the, uh, the petition, the online petition that we ran calling for the minister, uh, Marilee Fullerton, to be fired, which she was. And it was a headline a CARP welcomes new minister, Rod Phillips. We're glad to see someone new in charge. We have some strong ideas on what you should do. So do our members. We want immediate reinstitution of uh, long-term care inspection at homes, meaningful penalties for homes that fail the inspections, meaningful management changes at the ministry. Well, that started. They have a new deputy. And we want them to move home and community care from the Ministry of Health to the Ministry of Long-Term Care to signal that they're taking this seriously. So our emphasis is more on what immediate actions will you take that are concrete, that are visible, that are measurable, and that would show us that you're taking seniors seriously. Absent those actions, uh, we're we're on the warpath. What else uh, do you want to tell us about this? I just want to emphasize, though, to uh, to your listeners that this is a nonpartisan, multi-party, multi-jurisdictional issue. All of the parties failed us. All of the parties tried the usual platitudes and cliches. Nobody wants to be honest and come right out and say, we've got some very deep, serious problems here that need some really uh, thoughtful action. And uh, that's what we're going to be pushing for. David Kravitz, thank you so much. Thank you for having me, Libby. That was David Kravitz, CARP's Chief Membership Officer. And that brings us to the end of this week's edition of the Zoomer Week in Review. I'm Libby Snymer. Thanks for joining me today. Be sure to come back next week to stay up to date with all things Zoomer worldwide. Zoomer Week in Review is produced by Zeev Hadi, Christine Ross, and Paul Thomas. Technical producer, Justin Eacock. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.